Two weeks ago, we mentioned, as we presented a lesson from Amos, that we would follow that with another lesson from this great book and from this great prophet. Two weeks ago, we talked about Amos and some of the lessons that we can learn from Amos. One of the most courageous country preachers who has ever lived. And he was that, a country preacher. He was not a trained prophet. In fact, as we noted then, he stated in his writings, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet. But I was a sheep herder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. That's Amos chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. He was from Tekoa, that's about 12 miles from Jerusalem, 12 miles south of Jerusalem, and yet he was sent primarily to the northern kingdom of Israel during a time that was characterized, as we pointed out a couple of weeks ago, by extreme prosperity and greed. It was a time when the rich got richer and the poor got poorer because of the oppression of the rich and the immorality of the times, and we looked at some key passages to to demonstrate that. As uh, Amos described those who, who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on your couches, eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idly to the sound of stringed instruments and invent to for yourselves musical instruments like David, who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments, but are not grieved for the afflictions of Joseph, that is, of the northern kingdom, Joseph being put for the kingdom there. Amos 6, 4 through 6. Well, what did we learn? What lessons did we see as we looked at that lesson a couple of weeks ago? Well, I think there were some important lessons. One was, as we noted, that God has a job for each of us. That there is something that each of us can do in the kingdom of God, which is the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amos was a beautiful, classic example of that. He was just a country preacher, not even a preacher, not the prophet nor the son of a prophet, but God took him, he said. And in God's hands, he did a great work. And it illustrates for us that God has something for each of us to do. You remember we've said often that when you look at the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, there is no individual there who is listed among those who had talents. No one's listed as the no-talent man. There's a one-talent man. There's a one-talent man, but there's not a no-talent man. Why is he missing? Because there is no such thing. There is no such person as the no-talent person. Each one of us has something that we can do. And that's the beauty of the church. We're to work together. We're to labor together in unity and in in love and to recognize that we are a closely knit body and each one contributing to the whole so that the body is strong. God has a job for each of us. We also learned in that lesson two weeks ago that God, with God, the greatest credential that one can have is faithfulness to Him. The greatest credential that anyone can have is not how many degrees he has by his name at the end of his name. But is he faithful to God? Is she faithful to God? Every individual member of the body of Christ, faithful to God, has the greatest credential that one could ever have. 
We also looked in that lesson at the fact that God does not overlook sin in his people. His people may overlook sin, but God does not overlook sin. All one has to do is read the letters to the seven churches of Asia to see that among those churches who were named, there were several who were tolerating sin or sinning in one way or another, and God reminded them, the Lord Jesus Christ did, through John the Apostle, that unless you correct the situation, I'll come and remove my, your candlestick out of its place. In other words, I will withdraw my approval, my fellowship from you. And so God does not overlook sin in his people, and the book of Amos demonstrates it from the Old Testament, and it's an eternal principle for that matter. Also, we learn, as we studied lessons from Amos, that luxury and indifference go together. And the more, the more luxurious a person's lifestyle is, chances are indifference is going to accompany that, that luxurious lifestyle. What did Jesus say about those who hardly enter the kingdom of heaven? They are the rich. Those who are either rich or who desire to be rich, who have their priorities misaligned. And yet, we also read that the common people heard Jesus gladly. And so, luxury and indifference go together. And finally, in that lesson, we noted that God absolutely abhors formalism and ritualism. You know, there were those in Amos' time who who were going through the motions and all the new moons and the Sabbaths they were observing, but they were saying what? When will this be over <laughs> so that we can get back to our business, which is taking advantage of the poor and making as much money as we can? Oh, yes, they were careful to observe the, the rituals associated with the old law, but they couldn't wait for it to be over. Couldn't wait for it to be over. Their heart was not in it. And so, yes, we have looked at some very significant and important lessons from the book of Amos. God has a job for each of us. The greatest credential one can have is faithfulness to God. God does not overlook sin in his people. Luxury and indifference go together. And God abhors formalism and ritualism. But there's another passage I want us to concentrate on in this lesson today. And that comes from Amos 8 and verse 11. And in Amos 8 verse 11, the prophet says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land. And then he quickly adds, Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Now, if you study your Old Testament, you see, obviously, there were several famines, and they were severe. We see Abram, Abraham, who was later called Abraham, who went down to Egypt because of the uh, famine in the land of Canaan, in the book of Genesis. And you see uh, a famine uh, in the time uh, of, uh, of the Second Kings, during the period of uh, the book of Second Kings there, where uh, Syria was uh, attacking uh, Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom at that time. And when you read of the famine that characterized uh, the northern kingdom at that time because of the Syrian oppression, you see women and two women 
who had a complaint against the king, and it's, it's horrible to even think about, but it's there. The famine was so severe that as the king was walking along the wall, two women issued, one woman issued a complaint. You know what her complaint was? Do you remember that? Her complaint was that both of us agreed to boil our children and eat them. And I followed through and did it. And we ate that child. But she hid her child when it came time to boil hers. And that was the woman's complaint. It's hard to even fathom that. So yes, there were famines, physical famines in the land throughout the history of God's people. But we're not talking about a physical famine. We're talking about a spiritual famine here. And as we do, it reminds us of another passage from Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 6, where the prophet admonishes, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And that's a passage that indicates that barriers are possible between God and us. It is possible for us to erect barriers between ourselves and our God. And if we doubt it, look at the passage in the Roman epistle. At the beginning of that epistle in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Remember what Paul wrote there, for this reason... He's talking about those who had exchanged the truth of God for a lie and all of the lust of the flesh and God giving them up and so forth. And verse 26 again, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Our actions can indeed erect barriers between us and God. What I'd like for us to think about today is the conditions during Israel's famine and the conditions today that indicate a famine in our land. First of all, Israel closed her ears to the word of God. And because Israel closed her ears to the words of God through the prophets, what did God declare? That for four centuries there would be no revelation from God. No revelation from God for four centuries. That's the period between the Testaments. After the book of Malachi, you have a 400-year period where there was no revelation from God. Now, when Jesus came, there was no famine because the people did have the 39 books of the Old Testament. But there would be a famine of the revelation of God because... God's people had erected such a barrier between themselves and God. But when Jesus came, as we said, the people did have the 39 books of the Old Testament. Acts 15, 21. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And what did Jesus say in John 5, 39 to the Jews there of his day? He said, you search the Scriptures... For in them you think you have eternal life, 
and these are they which testify of me. And when Jesus said, in them you think you have eternal life, he was not saying you really don't have eternal life there, you just think you do. No, he was affirming that that is the word of God. And because it is the word of God that you have access to, you should know that those scriptures testify of me, and you should have received me. But you see, there was a famine of the hearing of the word on the part of the Jews. And that's the key. They had the Old Testament, but there was a famine of the hearing of the word on their part. Now, let's notice the reasons for that famine of hearing the word on their part. For one thing, they were relying on the traditions of the elders and the doctrines and commandments of men. They had become so entrenched in their additions and subtractions to the law of God that they'd lost sight of the true law. Jesus said to them, Mark 7 verse 9, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition." And they did that in spite of what Moses had warned oh so long ago in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 4 and verse 2 when he said, You shall not add to the word which I command you nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Don't add to it. Don't take from it. Also when Jesus came, a second reason that they rejected the scriptures that prophesied of him and should have caused them to receive him readily and openly and happily, they had such a strong allegiance to their religious parties. You had the Herodians. The Herodians were mainly a political party. And then you had the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, if you remember, denied the resurrection of the dead. Then you had the Pharisees. Pharisees believed in the resurrection in contrast to the Sadducees, but they were steeped in their tradition, so much so that it is the Pharisees who were primarily responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ because he confronted their tradition and he confronted their power. And then you had a group called the Essenes. And the Essenes were those who withdrew from society. They would be like the modern-day monks in our time who, uh, who go into monasteries and think that by secluding themselves from the world, they're doing uh, what God wills. The Essenes withdrew from society. They believed that there was a certain amount of spirituality in poverty and in denying themselves the, the things of the flesh. And so they separated themselves from the world. And of course, we are to deny sins of the flesh, but not things of the flesh that in and of themselves are good and proper. And yet the Essenes denied themselves all sorts of uh, things because they believed that's where their spirituality was rooted. And then another reason for the famine of hearing in the land was just ignorance. Just ignorance. Jesus once said to the Sadducees in Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine, he said, you are mistaken not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. You are mistaken. Why, Lord? Because you don't know the scriptures. And you do not understand and appreciate the power of God. Reminds us of what 
what God said through the prophet Hosea long ago in Hosea 4 and verse 6, when he said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And then he said, because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Destruction because of lack of knowledge. So that's what you had when Jesus came. They were relying on the traditions of the elders, the doctrines and commandments of men. They had a strong uh, allegiance to their religious uh, parties, and there was just ignorance that was rampant in the land. Well, now think with me for just a few moments about today. And tell me that there's not a famine of the hearing of the word of God today. Obviously there is. Oh, of course, many reject the word of God completely. They won't even give, they won't even give lip service to this book. In fact, they are, they are determined to destroy it if possible. And as we've often said, the atheists are perhaps more aggressive in their frontal attacks against God and against the Word of God than at any other time in our lives. There's no question about it. They don't make any bones about it. They are very open in their opposition, very aggressive in their opposition. And it manifests itself in various ways, and you see it manifested in news items that relate to religious liberty and the attack on religious liberty and so forth. And so there's no question that they are those who reject the word of God completely, those who deny God's existence. But what are the reasons for the modern famine of the hearing of the word in the land today? Well, it's, it's much like the days of old. It's much like the days when Jesus came. In fact, um, nothing new under the sun. Think about it. As with the days of old, do we have any traditions today and any doctrines and commandments of men that have caused this famine? Well, of course we do. Tragically, more abundant, more rampant than ever. You may be able to remember in your lifetime when the figure in terms of the number of denominations existing in our world was somewhere around 250. It's in the thousands. It is in the thousands now. And it all represents the fact that men have exalted their precepts above God's. The creeds of men have supplanted the scriptures. And religious people are like the Pharisees of the Lord's time. Loyal to tradition. And that related point is that they are giving allegiance to religious, quote, parties. The modernists, like the Sadducees, they're the equivalent of the Sadducees, the modern-day equivalent. The Sadducees denied the resurrection. What do the modernists do? The modernists deny the miraculous altogether. Therefore, they obviously deny the resurrection, but they deny altogether the, the miraculous. And so they'll tell us, for example, that the crossing of the Red Sea and the Uh, and the uh, problems that the Egyptians encountered in trying to follow the Israelites into the Red Sea was never a matter of parting the water, but that the chariots became mired in the mud. 
and that they crossed the Red Sea at a point when the sea, where the point was uh, so shallow that it would not have required a parting of the Red Sea. And they crossed in a shallow area, and then the Egyptians' uh, chariots became mired in the mud. Now, I don't know about you, but I think it's pretty hard to drown when your chariot wheels are mired in the mud. Generally, you can get out of that situation with your life. You may have to leave the chariot, but you can get out. But that's the kind of theory that is advanced by modernists who try to tell us they have an answer for every miraculous event that's recorded in Scripture. They give some natural explanation for it. Those are the modernists, much like the Sadducees who deny the supernatural. And the denominationalists, as we have mentioned, like the Pharisees of old, are so loyal to their denominational teaching rather than to the pure word of God. How many individuals in denominational bodies do you think, and you may know of some, who have had opportunity to study and learn the truth and perhaps even come to a point where they would say, I see, I see what this says, but, but I just can't leave where I am. I just have too much history here, too many friends here, too much whatever it may be. But there are those who have actually reached that point where they would give mental agreement to the truth of what has been presented, but still simply say what? I'll take my chances. Tommy was telling me just the other day, when I hear the phrase, I'll take my chances, telling me about uh, a lady in the church with whom he had had uh, consulted about her marriage relationship. And she came to him as he was preaching uh, in a congregation and asked about that. And he presented to her what the scripture said. And apparently she got the thrust of it. But what was her response? I'll take my chances. Wasn't that it, Tommy? She said, I'll take my chances. I know what you're telling me, and apparently she couldn't deny it, that it was coming from the book, but she just simply said, I'll take my chances. Well, that's the attitude of many who are so steeped in denominationalism that, yes, I know what you're saying, and yes, I can see, I can see the scripturalness of it, but, but I'll take my chances. What are they saying? They are saying, I'll take my chances with a loving God. I'll take my chances with a merciful God. I'll take my chances with a God who I believe wants me to be happy even, I, even if I'm in a, an unscriptural marriage. And since I am happy, I believe God will be happy too. All sorts of rationalization kicks in. And yet, all we can do is present what the Word of God says and do it in a loving and kind way. But yes, even when a doctrine is shown to be false among those in those bodies, those denominational bodies, many times they refuse to give up their loyalties to these groups. Nothing new under the sun. That was true in the time of Christ. And yes, ignorance is still alive and well among us today as a cause for the famine of hearing the word. 
And many have quit reading their Bibles. Many never started. But many have quit. And many, as we said, have never started. You know, I was just thinking this morning about the segment that's on the O'Reilly Factor, if you've ever seen that, and the Waters World segment. And if you've ever seen any of those, it's absolutely amazing because it's all about exposing ignorance, really. Not stupidity, necessarily. Those two are not, not the same. Uh, ignorance, though, is where you just don't know. And many times you don't know because you don't care. It's like the old humorous illustration, if I can remember it, that says, you know, one person says to another, I think ignorance and apathy are two main problems we face in the world today. What about you? And the response was, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> I couldn't think, help but think about what it would be like if Waters would do a Waters World segment, a Bible version of Waters World, where he went out and simply asked very basic Bible questions to individuals. Is it likely that if they don't know many times who the vice president of the United States is or other things like that, that they're going to know who Moses was? Not likely. Not likely. And so ignorance is still alive and well. And tragically, ignorance is alive and well in many places in the church, as it was not in the past. Because we are no longer characterized in many places as the walking Bibles we used to be. And you've all heard the old illustration, obviously, that if a person were in a court of law and they didn't have a Bible for a, a witness to place his hand on and... and Swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Just see if there's a member of the Church of Christ in the audience and get him up here and let the witness put his hand on his head. Because it'd be basically equivalent because there's so much Bible knowledge in there. And yet that's not, that's not the case in every place, is it, today? Not as, not as much as it once was. And there are those who desire to have ear ticklers in the pulpit. And Paul said that time would come. That time would come. And tragically, it has. Many have not received the love of the truth. Paul had something to say about receiving the love of the truth. Being so eager to hear and, and to know the truth. Listen to it. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And receiving the love of the truth is not just receiving the love of the truth to obey the gospel and become a Christian. Yes, that's, that has to be. But receiving the love of the truth is receiving the love of the truth about any subject that is biblical and applying what is taught to our lives. Receiving the love of the truth addresses the matter of loving one another. It addresses receiving the truth and loving the truth about relationships in the church. In other words, it's about every aspect of the Word of God. And yet there are those who are seeking entertainment from worship today, no question about that. 
And that's a growing problem in the Lord's church. And when you have books written like Showtime by Dan Chambers, Worship in the Age of Show Business, or Frank Chesser's book, The Spirit of Liberalism, or the late William Woodson's book on change agents in the Church of Christ, then certainly you know that we face that problem in many places. What can be done? What can be done? Preachers need to preach the word. And preachers need to preach the word without compromise as God wants it preached. You know, I think about Jonah. Jonah was told concerning Nineveh, go cry out against it. Cry out against it. And elders, where we have elders in the Lord's church, need to tend the flock of God. As 1 Peter 5.2 directs them to do. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. Not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. And yet, there are elders in the brotherhood who are listening to God's word today about like King Saul did concerning the Amalekites. And we talked about them in Bible class this morning. Remember what Saul said in response to Samuel's rebuke of what he had done in violating God's will about destroying all of the Amalekites? Saul said they have brought them, the people, they did it. It's somebody else's fault. They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen, and here's why they did it, as if to say, this is going to be good, Samuel, you're going to enjoy hearing this, you'll like this. They did this to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. How about that? And he said, the people took of the plunder sheep and the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed. Again, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Saul said, or Samuel said what? As we pointed out in Bible class this morning, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. And ultimately Saul got it. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. And your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I feared the people and obeyed their voice. 1 Samuel fifteen twenty four. What can be done? Preachers need to preach the word without compromise. Elders need to tend the flock of God as God directs them to do. And every Christian must study, work, and defend the faith if the famine has any hope of being overcome in our land today. What about you this morning? Have you received the word of God? Have you heard it and heeded it in becoming a Christian in the only way one can? By believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, John eight twenty four, By repenting of your sins, Luke 13, 3. By confessing Jesus to be the Christ, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. And then by being buried in baptism for the remission of sins. Mark 16, 16. If you haven't done that, you're contributing to the famine in the land. And therefore, we plead with you to hear the word and obey it. If you need to come home to your first love as one who is sent in a way to bring reproach upon the church in a public manner. If it's a private matter, take care of it privately. But between you and one or two, take care of it that way. 
But if you need to respond publicly because of bringing reproach upon the church in a public way, we plead with you to come home and no longer contribute to the famine in the land. As we stand to sing, will you come?